Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to our Practice Minder webinar. Um, goodness me, it feels like September's really started with a vengeance, doesn't it? It's suddenly extremely busy. There's lots going on. Um, so we do hope the recording of it will make it use- useful for you. As ever, we'll cover the um, hot topics and current issues and with our usual team of um, Michelle Lombardi and Dawn Childcraft and Helene Irvin. And we're delighted that Gareth Bryant, our acting CEO, is joining us today, um, which is really particularly good. Um, so first of all, I'm going to hand over to Helene, um, who is going to talk to us a little bit about some new guidance that's come out. Thank you, Louise. Hi, everyone. Um, just a few topics, really, this afternoon. And as Louise said, there'll be a lot more detailed information on our um, website. The first thing I just wanted to raise is about the National Protocol for Flu. We've had quite a few queries coming in about the role of the um, HCA in terms of the National Protocol. So in summary, um, HCAs can work under the National Protocol, but they cannot consent um, so they would need to be working um, directly under and supervision of a, a healthcare professional. However, for those of you in GP practices, please don't be concerned because they can still be actively involved and they have an essential role, as we know, in the flu programme. Um, and they can opt to use the group flu PSDs. Now, we do have an example of a group PSD on our website. Um, and also there's some added information from um, uh, SPS, which is the Specialist Pharmacy Services, on the use of PSD. So that is all sort of official and tick that box. If you are collaborating as part of a mixed practice PCN, PGDs for flu cannot be used in these circumstances um, and they would have to adhere to the national protocol. Um, the national protocol will be required if you are administering vaccines to persons who are not registered within your practice. So, for example, that will be staff in care homes. When it comes to peer, to peer vaccinations, if you recall last year, um, there was a written instruction produced, um, and that is still um, the same for this year. And again, it's been done by SPS, and we have that on our website. And in fact, Dawn will be updating us on peer-to-peer vaccinations um, later within this webinar. So I'll I'll, I'll leave that to to Dawn. Um, All the information, as I said, can be found in our Flu Top Tips document, which can be found on the very front page of our website. Obviously, if you have any additional queries, then um, please send them into the office and we will um, will address them as they come in. The other thing um, I just wanted to touch on, which has also been included in our um, weekly uh, LMC newsletter, is about checking healthcare professionals' registration. So I think we're all familiar that doctors have to be registered as professionals with the GMC and nurses with the NMC and pharmacists with the General Pharmaceutical Council. All other healthcare professionals um, need to be registered with something called HCPC, which is the Health and Care Professional Council. It's a statutory body that regulates and maintains a register over 280,000 professionals from 15 different um, backgrounds. And the importance of this is that this includes the AWRS roles, such as paramedics, dietitians, occupational therapists, and physiotherapists that you as practice may be involved with. Um, I won't go into too much detail about it because I say it is in our newsletter. All I would stress is that as employers, it's really, really important that you access um, the HCPC website 
and ensure that all these professionals that are involved in delivering care are registered. And it's very, very easy to um, go onto the website and get a link and check people's registration. Um, as I say, it, there's a little bit more information in our um, newsletter this week. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to pick up on is something that's sort of come underneath the radar, really. Um, and it's the National Standards of Healthcare Cleanliness. And I know a few practice managers are very much on the ball and have sent in a few queries and wanted advice on this. Um, and I've got a few slides. Uh, so this particular document was published in April 2021. And as I say, it did come slightly under the radar because you were all very much involved in, had more priorities at this stage. And it replaces the 2007 specification for NHS cleanliness. And what we're talking about here, obviously, is cleanliness with practice and infection control. Next slide, please, Louise. Thank you. So importantly, what are the implications for you as practices? I want to ensure you, I've read through the document and I, Dawn is far better at me than dotting the I's and crossing the T's and she will pick up on if there's anything I've missed, is you are doing okay. It's very, very secondary care focused. There's a very small section on page nine that refers to primary care. Um, and I don't think it's going to change very much what you're currently doing, because we all know that you're really spot on in doing infection control and, um, you know, cleanliness within the practices. So that's the first thing I, I want to say. There is a big section on audit, and I'll pick up on that, that later, and also on postings and ratings. And I've been in contact with the CQC, and this is what the CQC have ensured us. If you can just press the next button. Um, so there are no expectations that the CQC requires star ratings or logos to, to be displayed in general practice. We will continue to regulate using regulations 12 and 15 um, and the code of practice for prevention and infection control. I just wanted to stress that because there's a very, very big section in the document on posters and ratings. So it's not as if, you know, when you go into a um, cafe, you have your ratings there on, you know, how good they are in um, their cleanliness. You don't have to do that. So please, just to reassure you. Thanks, Louise. The next slide. Importantly, how can the document help you? Well, there are several appendices within the document that has quite a lot of um, very useful information. There's a cleaning framework and a cleaning schedule, which covers 50 items. And I can assure you most of those, if not all of those, you've already ticked. Um, and some of them you can certainly ignore. For example, commodes. I can't think of any um, general practice that would have to have a commode, um, whether that's for the staff or the, or the patient. So ignore that bit. What there is, is that um, they talk about something called functional risk, and this is divided into six specific areas from FR1 to six. Reading through, I think there are certain components that are relevant to general practice, um, and it may be worth you having a look at, and we'll pick up on those shortly. Um, the list is not exhausted, by the way, and you may have additional areas that you may want to add. There is a really good section on high frequency touch points. So that's the sort of things, you know, door handles, light switches and everything else, which, again, may be useful to you to have a look at and refresh to ensure that you've got those included within your infection control policy. Um, and it's all really about um, what we call regular cleaning. Next slide. Thank you. So audits, they talk about technical efficacy and external audits. So the technical audits are those that you're already doing. This is about sort of regular and random um, things that you'd be undertaking different times on different days within the um, within the practice. And this is where you'll be communicating with your with your cleaners. 
efficacy, and they normally are done as I say on a regular basis. The efficacy, this is where it's undertaken on an annual basis. So we're here talking about your, you know, your um annual infection control audit. Though I do think it's really essential or would be helpful to have infection control as a standing item, certainly on your nurses' meetings, but even certainly in the practice meeting, you may have nothing to discuss, but I just think it keeps it on the agenda. Um, and for me, when I worked in practice, I would occasionally do an occasional infection control sort of spot audit. This very much has an MDT approach. I don't think it's anyone's responsibility. I think it's everybody's responsibility in the practice, obviously including the cleaners, whether you employ them independently or um, uh, they're, they're sort of part of your, um, you know, if you're, you're part of more of a sort of an NHS property services. I think the important thing about it is that staff do need time to undertake an audit and it needs to be protected time to do that because it is something obviously that we know CQC are really, really hot on. Um, so it's very much about the audit of the personnel involved in it and making sure they've got regular training or certainly update training to undertake that. They also talk about an external audit and this is about a sort of quality assurance activity. They say that, you know, you could approach other practices to come in and, and do that for you. I'm not sure about that, but I think maybe this is a role for the CCG where you could contact your infection control leader at the CCG and say, you know, would you come through, have a look at our infection control policy? This is what we're covering when we're doing our audit. Is this sufficient? Can you give us any tips on that? So I certainly think that's probably a role for the CCG. Okay, next slide, please. So this is an example which I've taken of the efficacy audit. It looks rather complex. Please don't worry about it. But if, for example, waste management, consumables, hand hygiene, I can guarantee in cleanliness that you are already doing those. What they've done on here, if you notice, they've given the scoring system. So one means it's a pass and X would mean a fail. Um, again, you could use it and adapt it. It's very much up to you. OK, next slide. Thank you. Don't get phased by this. This is the audit template I was talking about. It's extremely comprehensive. It's very secondary care focused. You can adapt this um, to suit your needs. I could do it for you, but I don't think that's my role. I think this is very much a role for the CCG. I would strongly recommend that you contact your IC CCG team and ask them if they have made any amendments or an example of an audit that they could provide um, for you. It covers things sort of the different areas. As you can see, it um, picks up on responsibility. So that's the top who's responsible for those particular audits or responsibility for a particular area. And there's a scoring system involved, as we've talked before. One is for a pass, X is for a fail. Thank you. Next slide, please. So these are the functional risk assessments. So for me, reading through it, I think FR3-4 and um, six are applicable to general practice. And this is where they talked about audit frequency. So for example, FR3 within the document is um, refers to urgent care centers. I think that probably general practice environment fits into that. FR4 is about entrances and public um, corridors and patient areas. And FR6, they refer to that as educational training environments. And that's, I think, where the annual um, audit um, comes in. Within the document, there's a lot more detail. I'm very happy. I've sort of summarised all this. and I'm very happy to share that with individuals if they want. Thank you. I think that's the end of the slide. So very quick whistle blow tour through it. I would strongly say don't panic. I think you're already doing a fantastic job. There are a few other tips you may want to have a look at. It's quite a good section, for example, on um, staff uniform and the use of jewellery. 
um, and what perhaps you'll need to consider. It's not mandatory, it's guidelines. And as you know, from a, uh, an LMC, we always say it's guidelines, it's best practice. Just think about how you can adapt that um, within your environment. Um, but picking up on um, the hygiene thing, you know, jewellery, I have been on the CQC inspection where the practice were, um, it was highlighted the practice that perhaps the GP with her long nails and her nail varnish should not be doing minor surgery and she may want to reconsider um, that approach. So that's just something to think about. But any any more information that you want, um, please email us and we will do our very best to answer your questions. Thank you, Helene. That's really useful. Um, there aren't any questions on that particular um, item, but no doubt um, the practice managers will be having to think about it. They, they may obviously have been already been thinking about it with their teams and um, we know where you are if um, we need some more questions. So thank you, Helene. We know you've got another meeting to go to. So thank you for joining us today and we'll see you another time. Thank you. Um, Gareth, I think we're handing over to you now, please. Okay, thanks, Louise. Um, my brief today was to talk to you about uh, blood bottles, flu, COVID, etc. But before I go into some of the technical details, I'm now going to make Louise nervous and I'm going to go off piece slightly. Um, but some of you may have seen in the, in the, uh, the press this week about various inf uh, statements that the new Secretary of State has made about general practice and appointments. And indeed, some of our local MPs have jumped on the bandwagon criticising GPs in Parliament yesterday, which has been uh, incredibly irritating given how hard general practice is working at the moment. In this week's newsletter, there are a lot of resources that we are um, giving you from the BMA about the uh, Support Your Surgery campaign. And as you know, if you've read, the, the, read our newsletters recently, we've been conducting our own campaign with the media. Uh, we sent out a press release. Um, I did a TV interview and also some radio interviews, which trying to highlight the, the reality of what we're facing in general practice at the moment. You all know it. I'm not going to go through it all in massive detail. Um, but the point I would like to make today is that I think we need to focus on our patients, about educating and making our patients understand the problems, because ultimately, whether we like it or not, our contract is with the government, not our patients, because the government are the ones who pay our bills. And what do the government want? They want happy patients who vote them back in. And so at the moment, what the politicians are hearing is noise from patients saying general practice is shut. I can't get an appointment to see my GP. And they're reacting to that. We all know it's false. We all know it's a noisy minority, but there are serious, significant problems which need to be addressed. This sort of blame culture, which the politicians seem to be intent on throwing us into, is not going to be helpful. So I think it, what we can do, I don't think it's worthwhile spending a huge amount of energy on politicians trying to change their views, because I don't think you will. Their views are best changed by our patients. So we need to work, we need to focus on this and it's going to need all of us to do that. So there's the publicity materials which we which we will we will give you. Yesterday we met with uh, a chap from Devon LMC who demonstrated their um, warning system of the state of general practice to us and I've been in conversations with the BSW system about a similar but less complex system that they've had in place. But both of those systems rely on 
general practice, inputting some data and spending time to do it. And I know we're all really busy and I know it's really difficult, but actually without that data, it's very difficult to prove the argument. So I think things are going to move very quickly. I think we do need you to try to engage with your patients and use the materials. And I would like you to try to think about how you do that. We're also, we're meeting HealthWatch soon to make sure we try to get HealthWatch on our side rather than throwing bricks at us. And preliminary conversations we've had with them have been very positive that they absolutely do see the problem that general practice has at the moment and, not, and are not interested in throwing bricks. So we all need to work on this together, um, but also we need to recognise that we are working in, a, in the world with politicians where actually truth is becoming less important. It's all about spin, it's all about messages, and it's all about getting votes. And so I don't think we can do anything about that. So we need to focus on what we can do anything about. So that's my speech over. Um, I'm sure we will return to this again um, because I think this is what is going to play out over the next couple of months. Um, interestingly, I did see something uh, from the British Geriatric Society, which if you want to go and look at something that's quite cheering, if you go to the British Geriatric Society um, and search for uh, uh, BGS Voices Support for Primary Care, there is a fantastic letter by uh, the president-elect of the British Geriatric Society, which sums up uh, their support for general practice beautifully, and it's well worth reading. Uh, and it's, it's, it's this kind of coordinated response across the profession and across the system that we need to push back on this. So that's well worth having a look at. Right, okay, Louise, you can relax. I'm going back to the agenda now. Um, so flu, yeah, I mean, who would believe that we would not have flu vaccines delivered when they were going to be delivered because of transit and freight? I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, I gather supplies are now moving. Andy Perbrick, my colleague in Dorset, this morning was nervously awaiting his delivery, hopefully today, because he's got a full flu clinic back. It's absolutely recognised the extra work that this has brought to all of you in having to cancel and rebook appointments because of availability of vaccine. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing that anybody could do about it. Um, it was totally unpredictable. Um, the Flu Top Tips booklet, and hopefully you've all seen it. Um, we've done, a, or Dawn particularly, has done an awful lot of work on our Flu Top Tips booklet, which I think this year is the best ever. Um, I, it's a fantastic resource, so please use it. Please look at it. Um, we'll come on to COVID and flu in a minute. Um, but the other thing, of course, that's hit us is blood bottles. Um, they said that the supply would return to normal by the 17th of September, which by my calculations is tomorrow. Um, and clearly that's not going to happen. We understand that they are trying to source blood bottles that work with all the machines that the labs have. Um, and they may have done this, but I do not anticipate that supply is going to massively improve to sort this problem out quickly. We're hearing various rumours, but they are rumours only that we might be looking at October or November before we get back to anything like normal supply. But those are rumours. They are not uh, fact. I'm told that the national letter is going to be coming out soon. Uh, but we've all heard that recently. They seem to take a long time to produce these letters. Um, but according to the LMC list server, it's due out 
imminently. The, the issues are all clear. They're around safety of patients, quaff, uh, and the other contracts that rely on blood specimens, the medical legal implications, which we are reassured will be covered by CNSGP, CQC, we have raised the issue with CQC and also uh, nationally around um, that CQC inspections need to take into consideration the limitations that we're, are on us because of the lack of blood bottles. And of course, there's the kind of added stress and workload and adding more petrol to the flames of patient dissatisfaction with the system. So all of those things are well recognised and all of them are being put to government around what needs to be done. I am hoping that we will have suspension of certain national uh, uh, contracts, issues such as COF, uh, but it's not happening yet. NHS England are very reluctant to do that. Uh, thankfully, GPC have gone back into negotiations with NHS England now, um, and that's certainly on the agenda of the negotiators, is to suspend all of these activities that will be adversely impacted. The longer this goes on, of course, the more likely it is that they will have to do that. So moving to COVID, so the general picture with COVID, I'll come on to the vaccination program in a minute. Uh, the general picture with COVID, I've just been looking at the latest figures on the, on the website. And in fact, all of our regions, so Wiltshire, Baines, uh, Dorset, Hampshire, Isle of Wight and Swindon, are, all have... Uh, a reduction in positive tests um, in the weeks from the 7th to the 15th of September. So that's good news. Um, the national average is 18.4% reduced. Some of our areas have reduced by 30%. So, but unfortunately, deaths and hospital admissions are still going up. But this is, if you remember back to the horrible times of the, of the big waves, this is, of course, what we saw is that there is a lag between infection, community escalation, then hospitalisation, then intensive care, then death. So hopefully we will start to see the deaths and the hospital admissions declining in a couple of weeks' time because it appears for whatever reason the numbers of infections in the community are going down. We won't know that for definite because I have a nagging fear that it might actually be because people aren't presenting themselves for tests anymore. But we don't know. So we're all watching this anxiously. Hospitals are very, very busy. There is no doubt that apparently a third of all trusts in England were on Opal 4 last weekend. So that's really significant. So the system overall is under under pressure um, and I think in terms of as I was talking about earlier in terms of collecting data on primary care that's why it's so important that we have at least equivalent data that we can push back into the system to make sure they understand that if a third of all trusts are at Opal 4 it may well be that two-thirds of all general practices are on an Opal 4 equivalent and it's really important that we find a mechanism of doing that. So COVID vaccine so the booster programme, you've all seen in the press that the government have now released um, the plans for the booster programme. Um, I will very quickly run through some of the bullet points. Lots of the detail is still coming out, so we may not be able to answer all your questions today, but I'll, I'll run through the information that I, as I understand it at the moment. So it's cohort one to nine, which is the over 50s. Um, it's Pfizer or half a dose of Moderna, but the vast majority will be Pfizer. 
unless you clinically require AZ for allergy or previous uh, adverse reaction to Pfizer. You, the 15-minute observation with Pfizer continues. So logistically, that immediately causes a problem doing it with flu, though they're currently saying co-administration with flu is clinically safe, well-tolerated and recommended where appropriate. And that's in the national protocol for flu. So you can give it together, but logistically in terms of the 15 minutes, you need to think through that, how that will affect your planning for your uh, vaccination site. Uh, the booster is given six months after the second dose. Now, obviously, we started giving COVID vaccines in, early, in earnest just before Christmas, but really in early January, it really kicked off. Um, so obviously, that, that six months is, has gone beyond. So there will be an initial phase where quite a lot of people will be eligible for a vaccine. They're not going to space the cohorts but they want you to work through in priority order. So they're not going to do as they did with the 40s and below 50s and say, right, now we're doing this this cohort. When, and then a few days later saying, now we're doing the next cohort. They're not going to say that, but they do want you to work through in priority order, which is care homes, vulnerable elderly, frontline health and social care staff. But actually, if you think about it, those are the first people we did anyway. So that makes sense that they will be the first ones to have a booster. Um so the start of the program, they're saying likely the 20th of September and in full from the 27th where possible. So they wanted to start as soon as possible. The national PGD is due on the 21st of September and no date for the national protocol yet. Um, and the important thing is you cannot write a local PGD. So it has to be the national one. So if you remember the previous vaccination campaign, there was a lot of stress at the beginning where these documents were late. Hopefully they will improve on that and we will have the national PGD and the national programme out as soon as possible. So apparently a letter was sent to all sites yesterday approving go live. Um, final details to be confirmed by today, if possible. Um, uh, boosters, the third primary dose still needs to be under a PSD um, until the updated national programme or PGD if you do identify anyone. Uh, and then the other thing I've heard today on the list server, but I've not seen any official documentation of this, is that the uh, point of care recording system, a pinnacle, has been modified to be able to record flu at the same time. So for those that are planning joint clinics, that should make the, the, the management of that. There are obviously ongoing issues around that flu has normally delivered at practice. Now we're talking about delivering potentially some of it in a PCN and how that works in terms of finance flows and all the rest of it. But that deep level of detail will need to be worked out um, over the coming weeks. Um, so Sorry. Sorry. that's probably just... it for, for me for COVID. But Michelle, do you want to come in? It was just to highlight the if around the flu and COVID being entered in Pinnacle. So if that is ha if that is happening, then the money will, the funding for flu will go to the lead practice within that PCN. So if that's the case, you're going to need to look at your collaboration agreement or your collaborative yeah. agreement, um, just to highlight that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant. That's what I meant by the, the financial flows. But you're right. You're absolutely right. But um, uh, this needs, but, but, but it will need to be worked through locally because every site is different. Every PCN agreement in theory is different. Um, and, you know, it depends a lot on relationships between practices and how they, and how they want to work. Um, but there is the option to, to do it as a combined 
um, event. Um, yeah, so that's probably that's probably it for me, Louise, in terms of the COVID update. Um, that's yeah, there are a few questions. We will all be glued to our screens over the coming days because I think, as ever, the information is going to drip out, but probably drip out fairly quickly. Okay, a fast drip. Okay, that's fine. We'll, there are a few questions, um, Gareth, if you're right to answer those. So, um, flu delivery crisis wasn't completely unpredictable, as like the blood bottle situation, only having one main supplier at the time of us ordering could ha- was bound to have complications or could have had complications. Is there any work being done by NHSE to expand the company's licence for these affected vaccines? Yeah, well, I agree with that. <laughs> um, I don't know whether NHSE are doing any work on it. You would like to think so, wouldn't you? Mm, okay. Um, Quoff, I'll start with Quoff. The EMIS searches have only just been released. Um, this has meant we've missed an under the three month cancer care offers. Is there anything we can do? It was a new indicator. We struggled to identify these patients, and obviously, it had no codes for it either. So it feels like our hands have been tied. I think my view on that would be that's a valid reason to exception code. And I think when you do record the exception code, document why you've, record, why you've exception coded them. Um, and I think the EMIS search not being released, et cetera, would be a valid reason. Great. That's really helpful. Thanks, Gareth. OK, can I ask about the immunosuppressed patients? Ardens have not updated their searches. Are we allowed to start doing immunosuppressed patients? Yes. Yes. OK. Um, care homes how do we do this for Pfizer for 15 minutes it'll be 80 staff hours for us to complete them and housebounds too with the 15 minutes um, it's going to be very difficult for us to manage that yeah I agree um, I think we'll wait to see what's in the protocol when it's released um, okay. is that but it's absolutely right it's a practical requirement so if the intention is to use Pfizer then those patients need to be observed the question comes is who are they observed by and if you're in a care home or care setting, then you may have resources to have people observe them. Okay. Uh, homes, different thing. Housebound is different. Yeah. Okay. So possibly sort of not rush into it, but think around a little bit laterally around the logistics of how yeah. organising it. Um, is the COVID-19 booster six months from the first or the second vaccine? Uh, my understanding, it's the first but again, we need the, the specifics of the, of the documentation, but that's my understanding. Um, can we not do flu in our clinical system, each practice? So I think that's just recording of the flu data, I think, if you're in a PCN, I think that's what they mean. I think, we, I think it's a question of working through the logistics and working to the information comes out, isn't it? I think there are some... Sue, I don't think we can probably help with that at the moment, but come back to us if I've misunderstood what you're trying to say. Finally, I wonder if uh, so. If you're just doing a normal flu clinic as you would every year, you can record those in your clinical system. Yes, only so, when you're looking to co-administer. There we go. So, so EMIS system record flu as you normally would. That's fine. Ah, that's one easy one, isn't it? She says thanks. That's obviously we've got. Thank you for that, Michelle. Um, final one. Um, how do we get funding for the flu vaccines that we give to people in care homes that are not our patients? you want me to take that one? Happy to take that. They need to register those patients as immediately necessary and record flu as they normally would for other patients. We are aware that there are some issues. I think an update went out. I think it's definitely for the southeast, stating that they might have the practice might have to wait until the end of the season to receive those payments. We are currently discussing that with the public health teams because we are concerned that that's a long time to wait and this could be 
quite a number few, you know, quite a few people that are, are being vaccinated. So we are raising that for practices. But register is immediately necessary and uh, code as you normally would. That's great. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Gareth. That was really interesting. And thank you for your um, bit of peace at the front. That was interesting. Sorry, go on. I've just checked and actually just um, just to say, no, it is, in, it is in fact, it is the second dose. So JC Van have confirmed that the booster vaccine dose is offered no earlier than six months after completion of the primary vaccination course. So it's not the primary vaccine, it's the course. So it's so six the months second dose okay that's good check that on jcbi and that's the that's the truth that's really helpful to clarify thank you gareth and just going back to your original comments about um, media and patients and and liaising with patients we have we work with a media company for the press release um that um led to gareth doing his um, interview on the bbc south so um, the same media company is running a webinar on the 5th of November that's open to all of you if you are interested, just at lunchtime at one o'clock. Um, and that's about how you can liaise with your patients, how you can use your website and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. It feels like one more thing to do, doesn't it? But actually, at the moment, it is actually, you might save a few phone calls. It might be just the way to, so if you can get into a routine, it might be really helpful. So they're very practical um, and they're very helpful. So do come along there and learn some tips and we will push out anything we possibly can that we think will be useful for you. Um, but communications with our patients directly are going to be really crucial as we go forward into this um, difficult few months. Okay, Gareth, thank you for that. I think we're handing over to Dawn now. I think you're finishing off with a bit of flu there, Dawn. Yes, thanks, Louise. Um, yes, a little bit more on flu. Flu for your staff. Um, Public Health England made us aware um, back on the 3rd of September so nearly a couple of weeks ago now, um, that they were expecting some confirmation on arrangements for vaccinating uh, frontline healthcare workers employed in primary care. Um, and this would include dentists, um, optometrists, as well as pharmacies. Um, they were expecting to have that in the last week or so, um, but here we are. We're in the end so um, and we still haven't got any further update. But what they are saying is that um, in the meantime, please continue to vaccinate um, your staff under the occupational health arrangements that have been um, in place over previous years. Don't do anything else just yet. Um, and they will um, advise practices directly. And apparently it's also going to be in the primary care bulletin that comes out. Um, I'm sure most of you do see that, but they are actually expecting a change um, to align primary care, frontline healthcare workers with the rest of the frontline healthcare worker cohort. Um, so that would need a change in the enhanced service, which is perhaps where it's holding up slightly. But there might be um, something a little bit more positive there for us, um, hopefully not too soon um, to wait. But we do need to wait for Public Health England to let us know on that. Um, moving on, Louise, do you have that slide, please, on the PCSC? Well, I do, but I'm going to take you back, Dawn, because we've had a question. And I think oh. it's best to do it at this, at this very moment. So if you've got a volunteer, for example, a marshal in the flu clinic that isn't our patient, are we able to give flu vaccines as you would with staff? Do they count as staff in that particular instance? Do volunteers count as staff? Yes. Do you know, I don't, I would suggest they do if you've, particularly if you're employing them, but if they're volunteers, I guess they'd be free of charge, won't they? Gareth, Michelle, have you got any comments on this? 
I think we possibly need to wait. Let's see what the guidance says. Um, yeah. so we'll I, I agree with Dawn, but I think we probably just need to wait for the guidance. So we'll come back to you, Jenny, on that one because it's a good point. So sorry, Dawn, I stopped you in your tracks. No no, I'm going to share my screen now. We'll wait and see. Yeah, like Michelle says. Um, yeah, PCSE, if you can just share that one slide, please, Louise. I'm sure you might have all probably seen this in our newsletter a couple of weeks ago, but the BMA are doing a survey on your experiences with PCSE. Um, <clears throat> probably not much more to say on that other than your experiences might, might not be quite as we would like. Um, anyway, it's your chance to have a say. Uh, the BMA wants to take a snapshot of your experiences of the new GP payments and pension system, um, preferably kind of during August, effectively what they're saying. The survey closes tomorrow, the 17th of September, and we do know you're hugely busy, um, but equally some of your uh, workload might have actually been due to some of the PCSE issues, so this might be the chance to um, put your thoughts forward, shall we say. Um, and the BMA would really appreciate if you can do uh, something on that, and the reason we put the slide up is because of the uh, the time frame now it closes tomorrow and that's the web address there on the screen that you need to go to to do the bma survey to give your thoughts on the pcse pension and payments system um, moving on from pcse if we can take the slide down thank you the other thing i was going to mention today but I, we're going to put something i believe in our newsletter probably next week on this is some of you may have um, afghan refugees now moving into your areas relocating resettling um, public health england have issued some guidance for primary care professionals um, concerning afghan relocations um, it is something that your commissioners will be aware of as well. Um, there is a little bit of funding available um, if you are um, registering and dealing with those resettling. Um, having said all of that, the uh, paperwork associated to such, um, I would suggest you might want to have a look at first um, because it's not inconsiderable. But anyway, uh, your commissioners will know and be in touch with you, I believe. In fact, I, I'm aware one CCG has already um, been out to their practices to let them know about the options um, around this. But we will put something in our newsletter next week. Um, there is a guidance booklet, as I said, and there's also um, a finance paper as well that's run separately. Um, it, it's worth about £600 a year um, per registered individual per Afghan refugee, I guess. Um, but that £600 comes with um, the requirement to complete a certain amount of paperwork to, to validate what you're doing for them. So you may or may not wish to consider it. But um, the links and the detail will be in the newsletter next week. And I think that's everything I have at the moment, Louise. I think you're going to talk about... I am. I am going to go on, but we have had one more query in. We've, okay. We have already had refugees allocated. Where is the guidance? Okay. I think probably what we'll need to do, because it's the guidance um, you also will want, I, I'm sure you will want the finance paper as well. So probably the best thing um, to do is uh, we can put it alongside the podcast. Is that okay, Louise? I'll send it to Jo. Yeah, um, so we'll put it alongside this podcast. But again, also, I think probably in next week's newsletter, we can put something as well. Yeah, so we'll put those as links next to the podcast on our website um, and we'll just keep you updated. But um, yeah, if you can't find this, email us in 
and we will share that with you. I just wanted to mention something that we've just become aware of, the staff mental health and wellbeing hubs. I don't know how many of you are aware of these. So the Southwest um, Dorset and BSW, you're covered by the Southwest Hub, and Hampshire and Isle of Wight are covered by the Southeast Hub. And it's response to the pandemic. And I just had a little look at them this morning, and they just said, when you've had a tough day, are feeling worried or overwhelmed, um, have got lots on your mind and need to talk it through. So that's probably all of you. So all I would say is that is a lot of support out there. Please don't feel you haven't got time to access it. Um, and if you can't remember where we've talked about accessing support, please come to us and we'll point you in the right direction. But it's really important that you're looking after yourselves as well as looking after all your patients and as well as looking after all your staff. So please don't hesitate to come to look at that sort of thing. So there's it's split up into three different resources, resources for you, resources for your team, and then just useful links. And the links are things like... Um, personal support, um, there's also about videos with anxiety, um, there's also things about um, sleep, if you're suffering from sleep deprivation, so there's videos to watch, you can contact an individual if you want to talk something through, or there are some links, so I know there was links everywhere on everything, but that's another thing for you to look at if you wanted to, so the NHS UK mental health and wellbeing hubs, um, so I just thought that you might be interested in those. And just to um, go on to say there are particular groups of individuals that the NHS have become aware of um, that might need particular support so based on their ethnicity, religion, gender identity or disability. Um, so the, there's NHS England support for diverse colleagues too. So if um, whatever you are, however you're feeling, if you think you'd like some support generally or from a particular group, um, then there's that also out. And we'll put those links also on our website. Um, as I say again, I can't reiterate enough how important it is for you to look after yourselves at the moment. Um, okay, I think that's it. Unless anybody else, Gareth, Michelle, Dawn, have you got any more things to add? Any more queries? Interestingly, reversely, we have had people joining us as we've gone along today rather than um, anything else. So that's been interesting. We started with a few and we've got, ended up with 46 at the end. So that's great. So I hope it's been really useful for you. As ever, we'll put it out as an audio podcast for you to re-listen to if you really loved it or if you haven't had the chance to, obviously, we'll put it out as an audio podcast. And um, I'll say thank you very much. All the best. And um, we will back with you again very shortly. Thank you. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.